0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Join the only roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top
1: commentators in compliance. Check out the rants and shout out at the end of each episode. Hosted by Tom Fox, the voice of compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.
2: Everything Compliance is now the award-winning Everything Compliance, having won the top talk show in podcasting award by W3. In this episode, we take a deep dive into the ABB FCPA enforcement action. Jonathan Armstrong considers it from the UK perspective and asks, would a UK court grant a DPA in this situation? Karen Woody looks at internal controls. Matt Kelly looks at CCO certification. Jay Rosen considers the bribery funding schemes, and Tom Fox shouts out to the DOJ for their actions in this case. All this, shout outs and rants, and more on this episode of Everything Compliance. Before we get to today's episode, we're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, Hello, everyone, and welcome to the award-winning Everything Compliance. Today, we have the gang of Jonathan Armstrong, Karen Woody, Matt Kelly, and Jay Rosen. We're going to take up the ABFCPA resolution. So with that, I'm going to give a short recitation of the facts for those who have been visiting Mars and may not have heard of this case. But the DOJ announced a highly anticipated resolution with AB Limited, the giant Swiss construction company. They are the first three-time FCPA violator, so that in and of itself is significant. The fine and penalty was 315 million, with amounts going to South Africa, Switzerland, Germany, the DOJ, and the Securities and Exchange Commission. The bribes itself, the bribery itself, involved the purloining, stealing, or somehow moving a construction contract from the South African electric company Eskom to ABB Limited. They had a very aggressive approach and had a capture team and a sales shark leading this effort. They also had a corrupt Eskom official who sent the contract their way. They ended up having two corrupt Uh, agents, distributors, or not distributors, but subcontractors, E's in South African parlance, who were used to funnel bribes. So we're going to take a look at that from a variety of perspectives. But we're going to start not in the United States, but in the lovely United Kingdom with Jonathan Armstrong. So happy holidays, Mr. Armstrong. And what do you have for us on ABB?
1: Thanks very much, Tom. Uh, In terms of the UK, I suppose ABB, is the one that got away, or perhaps it's one of the many that got away under the regime of the current SFO director. Uh, As I understand it, AB self-reported themselves to the Serious Fraud Office. The SFO launched an investigation in February 2017. It was related to the whole Oil debacle that we've talked about previously, where the SFO have managed to get convictions and then not get convictions and cede people to the US and then not cede them to the US. But it's connected with all of that. But for reasons we're not entirely sure, in May 2020, the SFO dropped the investigation. They didn't really give any substantive reasons, but they said that it hadn't passed the prosecution threshold. So that's either because they didn't think they could get a conviction or that they thought it wasn't in the public interest to bring the prosecution. What we do know, however, is that they did start an investigation and made a freedom of information request against the SFO to try and get details of what they'd done. They said that they did 15 interviews that they spent 1,411 hours working up their investigation. They issued 17 Section 2 notices, these notices we've talked to before on the podcast where you serve a notice on somebody who you think's got information to help in the investigation. And they spent £121,000 of British taxpayers' money on the investigation but yet it seems that the, I don't know, the kid who wasn't selected for the game stood on the touchline. There seem to be ongoing investigations in Germany and in Switzerland. My contacts in Germany say that there's nothing imminent in Germany from what they understand and think that something may be happening in Switzerland somewhat sooner. But one of the questions I think you asked me during the week, Tom, what would happen if this were the third time round the rodeo for somebody under an SFO deal? Deferred prosecution agreements came in the UK in 2014. We had our first in November 2015, the ICBC case. And how I think deals are different in the UK versus the US is that they are subject to judge approval. And effectively what happens is criminal proceedings start and then prosecution and defence try and do a deal. But they always have to persuade the judge that deal is in the public interest. And the judge in the first case said that it has to be fair, reasonable and proportionate. And they're the three things that he's looking at. And judges in the UK aren't a pushover. For DPAs, we have almost like a historic resistance to any form of plea bargaining in criminal cases. And as a result, I think judges are proper barriers. Just because the prosecution and defense have agreed doesn't mean to say that the deal's been done. So I wonder if they would have ever got deal two in the UK. As I said, there is that inherent reluctance of judges to sanction deals that take things out of the full criminal proceedings. And what would have happened had the terms of the DPA been breached in the UK is it would likely come back to court again and the whole criminal proceedings reinvigorate themselves a bit like, I don't know, Tutankhamun's mummy and come back and live again. And then it is possible to do a second DPA. We haven't ever had one in the UK, But then again, I think the judge would be looking at that fair, reasonable, and proportionate and saying, you were given a chance of leniency under a DPA. Persuade me why you get a second chance. So I think from my perspective, it's not happened. So we're talking academically. But my suspicion is you don't get three bites of the cherry under the UK system.
3: Jay, do you have a question for Jonathan? Jonathan, wondering with the lack of recent success and the new top administration that's going to be shuffled over at the SFO, might this be a good time to change and allow the third bite of the cherry?
1: I think the UK didn't get the first bite of the cherry here. I think that we are obviously lots of uncertainty with the SFO. So we know that the current director isn't standing beyond her term, So she'll be gone next year. And we know that there are a number of investigations into things that have happened at the SFO, including unit Oil, where there are files on desks of the relevant ministers. We know that there were threats to abolish the SFO in the past. And some people say that it suits the current government to have a weak SFO. Some would say because of the allegations of corruption most recently about Baroness Mohn and the money that she received from people close to the Conservative Party. So we don't know what the future of the SFO is, and we don't know whether it will become stronger. If it does become stronger, then I can see them getting more involved in cases like ABB. It's somewhat odd to have a self-report, To have 17 Section 2 notices, which are only to be used, really, when there seems to be a valid investigation. And then to have the whole case be closed. We know that the current director of the SFO was anxious to close out what you might call Deadwood cases. Those cases that the agency had been handling for a long time. Hindsight's a wonderful thing, but it seems from what we've learned about ABB since that maybe this wasn't a Deadwood case.
2: Karen, do you have a question for Jonathan?
4: Yeah, I'm just so fascinated by this, like posture of the judiciary in the UK that is hesitant to bless DPA's, And I'm wondering how that affects defense strategy and actually maybe even prosecutorial strategy and going forward, are people less likely to cooperate if all the work might not end up going anywhere?
1: I, th- I think you're right, Karen. I think that's a really good question. And of course, we never know about DPAs that have gone no way. I hear rumours that there are a number of corporations who have said we're not going to do a deal because there is that risk factor and we're exposing ourselves publicly against an SFO that's especially strong at the moment. So I think the fact that there isn't absolute certainty... And the fact that we have a prosecutor that's regarded as somewhat emasculated means that it, it does influence defence strategy, and obviously for the prosecution as well, they the SFO have to offer DPA a company can't insist on it, and obviously they've got to be confident that they can get it past a judge as well.
2: Jonathan, how would all of this work if you have true a truly international investigation? Similar to what we had here, United States, South Africa, Switzerland, Germany, and the United Kingdom. If all of the parties agreed to some sort of settlement, yet in the United Kingdom, that resolution would still have to go in front of a court. And there's still uncertainty as to what a judge might do. As let me just follow up with Karen's idea of or question about defense counsel. If you're a defense counsel, you have to raise a possibility we may not get the resolution we want, but If you want to settle with everybody else, are you still opening up yourself potentially in the United Kingdom?
1: I think you are, and I think we have had one case where the judge said that he didn't think that the share of the fines was fair. So obviously the judge, as well as determining whether a DPA is the right thing, will look at whether the terms of the settlement are fair as well. And in that case, from memory, it was perceived that the U.S., had secured a greater share of the fine pot. I think the judge effectively said, I'm going to let it through this time, but don't come back to me again with an unfair division of the spoils. Obviously, here it's somewhat complicated because I think the idea is that the fines will be used in part for restitution as well. I think that's a long-standing history in the U.S., and the UK. Siemens, I think, for example, some of that settlement, I think, was diverted back to places like Hungary for programmes there. And so I think it isn't a given that the divvy up agreed by the prosecutors would get sanctioned by a UK judge as well. Although in cases like Airbus and in Rolls-Royce, for example, we have had the court follow the the divvying up of the spoils that was agreed on a multinational basis.
2: So Matt, you have looked at this case from many different angles, but I know one that has intrigued you was the certification angle. And you and I went around and around about that for a little bit, but you see it as perhaps raising more questions than answers. So what interested you about this case?
0: I wanted to talk maybe about two things very quickly. I think it's worth self-disclosure hiccup that ABB had where... They originally were trying to call the Justice Department and said, we want to, and the Justice Department said, sure, come on in whenever, next week or something. Then the call to schedule a meeting media reports came out of these misconduct in South Africa. So they were, and weird set circumstances, Justice Department bent over backwards to say that we understand you tried, they got screwed up, and they talked at length about, importance of voluntary self-disclosure or even making an effort wrong anyways because of weird circumstances beyond your control that folks my best practice now for self-disclosure is just put it out there in a tweet that you have fcpa issues tag the criminal division bam there you go you got your self-disclosure voluntary nobody's going to scoop you on that i was intrigued by the requirement for a chief compliance officer certification for the ABB case, and also for the other big thing that just happened here, which was on about two days ago, three days ago, for its big, its enormous anti-money laundering branch, branch in a Est- which kind of blew up across the world in 2018. The Estonia branch had funneled about $230 billion of weird transactions through the Estonia branch from Russian nationals who very clearly were either cronies of Vladimir Putin cutouts. But we had two big deals that both had chief compliance officer certification requirements. And number one, the thing that I feel is weird, all of 2022 here, the Justice Department has been telling people, CCO certifications are coming to Do it. They're going to be required. And lo and behold, and now suddenly the Justice Department is not Disclosing that in their press releases. They talk about a lot of other things in these but they didn't mention it with ABB. They with don's Bank. I had mentioned it in some other we saw earlier this year, like Glencore. I do wonder what the justice is doing and how serious are they about CO certifications? Because everybody has been quite concerned about the practications of this if you're a compliance officer. And now that these are becoming Standard actually talking about them. It's not easy to find them. In both cases, a uh, slope of the deferred prosecutions or the plea agreements detail all, all of these. And I get it that the Justice Department is not required to release those documents. But if defense officers do sit up and think about these things seriously, it's strange, difficult to find what are the actual terms of these deals. But, anyways, eventually they did. And to a certain extent, these requirements, are not a surprise. They have been what the justice told us for long for ABB both for their respective misconduct issues. They need to make annual justice department written reports is what we are doing to improve our compliance programs. They both need to have quarterly meetings to show how they're progressing along. And at the end of their three year terms, then the chief compliance officer and the CEO have to say that yes, to the best of our knowledge, these programs are to be effective and detect of misconduct. But one or two things that I think are worth calling are that the chief compliance officer certification agreement specifically says we are certifying that our compliance program is effective to detect and prevent FCPA violations. And with Don's bank, it expressly says it is effective to detect and prevent anti-money laundering violations. The way, If you have a violation of another type of law, does that mean that these agreements or certifications, are they or are they not valid? Like in theory, you could have a large bank commit a violation. We've seen that. Most in theory, a company swept up in some sort of marketing issue because i think we've seen that over the years too but what you are actually means is violate, and it is not just we have a gram across the board but didn't a deputy attorney general lisa monaco say that we will be looking at all forms of misconduct at a company when we evaluate what you should be your what you're and now we're only talking about specific violations have to certify, not other types of misconduct. The message there is with that, but the other thing strikes me: for all of our focus on the CEO and the CCO certifying their compliance program, and we know some of the concerns we have. What if the CEO wants to? What if we turn out to be wrong? What if leaves halfway through the term and a new one comes in? Do they certify a program they didn't design? Do they get to read? I don't know the answers to any? of of that. But I think we're overlooking one big point is that certifications these companies have to sign. CFO have to certify at the end of the three years that the company has fully disclosed to the best of its evidence of any other types of misconduct that have been happening. If it's any allegations against corruption for ABB, it's allegations against a bank fraud and AML for Dansbank. Bank. So here's if the CEO and the CF are happy to sign that away, CEO and the C- CO copacetic or they're not on the same page about science program certification. How's that? Because that to me strikes me as a, that's a red flag that would be visible from the moon. It would be such a big thing for the Justice Department, but it is yet another. Companies might be able to strong arm their compliance officers in the signing something they're not. If the CEO and the CFO have already signed it, what does that mean for the compliance officer to sign it? Are you going to get fired? Do you have to resign? Are you going to sign your certification against your better judgment? A hundred different ways we could keep gaming out in programs are really problematic, and we don't have any answers for anything. It's just striking that here, they're real, There's more than one now, People don't fully understand Karen, do you have a question for
2: Matt?
4: Yeah, it's a little less about the certification, but maybe a little earlier in the timeline. It had to do with the what you and Tom have both been writing about a little bit, about this idea of this extraordinary cooperation, this sort of almost real-time yep. disclosure when they learn more facts as the investigation's unfolding. And so to me, that strikes me as near abrogation of your role as a defense counsel to just have, here are the keys to the house come every time everything we own you own sort of thing but ironically also maybe some of the reason ABV got the disposition it got at the end because of this extraordinary cooperation so I was taken by what you both have said in various blog posts about this extraordinary level of cooperation which might now become the norm and if there actually is daylight then between compliance and defense counsel i'm just I'm curious to your thoughts about that
0: it's a very interesting and very important question question that, yet again, we don't have an answer to it. Others have also, Tom, the top professor at Indiana, he sketched out, it is not far-fetched could wind up being a de facto execution. And then suddenly we have constitutional protections that come into question. Uh, what if the company is investigating, and I'm not sure what I want to do, does defense counsel then call justice and say, we're trying to get this guy? but? So, go and investigate him. I, that sounds suspiciously. You are meant to strong arm somebody into a criminal prosecution that they may barely deserve. I don't have an answer to that. But I do see a lot of pressures that put in defense or corporate legal teams against each other, compliance, and maybe conceivably HR team. A lot of employees who are very, maybe they're going to quit and take valuable knowledge with them, we could all day long. And so often, I think the answers are, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And there's one other point I think is worth, we have talked about this all year long, the risks here. Let's remember, nobody has signed any of these, because you sign them at the end of the DPA, and that might be three years. Okay, that's 2025. Let's take over Washington in 2025, and the next Attorney General decides we're not. Doing, that's not our either. And then suddenly, our concerns and questions about this might go away because the assessor Department might decide they're not going to make anybody. Has anybody considered that? I don't know. And there's, it is a very nice. It just gets pulled apart when we get into these details.
2: So, Karen, we've been talking a lot about the Serious Fraud Office and the Department of Justice, but there's also a SEC settlement. In this matter. So I wanted to maybe ask you to focus on that a little bit. And what did you see interesting around the ABB settlement from the SEC perspective?
4: Yeah, I actually will we'll talk a little bit about that. But I also wanted to think about something I think that applies across all of these settlements, DOJ, SEC, and even the international ones. And that has to do with the internal controls, which of course, then comes back to exactly the purview of the SEC on the books and records and controls issues. And I just, I think there are big red flags in here that actually were totally buried so that they became completely neutral in these facts. When I saw the headline about ABB before opening the relevant documents, I just, first of all, I think we all just rolled our eyes and thought, oh my gosh, it feels like a time machine. We're here learning about ABB again. And I, when I saw the substance of it, I thought, oh, this is going to be one of these classic, no one knew what was going on in this sub in South Africa. And there just wasn't anyone with their finger on the switch down there or something, or wasn't, there weren't lines of communication up to Switzerland. All these sort of maybe more classic, what I assumed would be in these documents. And it's actually the opposite. The problems here really come from headquarters. And when you look at these facts and even on this, when they had, they sent out capture team, that is staffed. And that is from the direction of headquarters in Switzerland saying, we got to make sure that the people in South Africa will get this. So let's send in our, the big dogs to handle this. And then from that point on, it just keeps unfolding in all of these times where there actually were internal controls that should have maybe held, but for the fact that sort of tone at the top, people ignoring things. So somebody pointed out these two subcontractors they hired, but look, someone pointed out that they weren't qualified. So there was some ringing of a bell somewhere was initially ignored i think for the first subcontractor who was funneling the bribes and then for the second subcontractor they ended up doing a waiver again bringing someone from the u.s to come and gloss over that so it seemed almost the inverse to me of what i expected to read which is no one was really paying attention to what was going on in some other office but instead it was everyone knew what was going on and the people from the top down were had a hand in this which i thought was unbelievable and it just the other thing i thought was an interesting was this you mentioned the b subcontractors and that stands for i think the black economic and empowerment act that south africa had passed that requires the use of local subcontractors that's how we even are in some of this space in order to get this power plant done in south africa And that also just jumped out at me. This is obviously a law passed in South Africa in order to empower their local contractors and people to be involved on the ground. But the irony there is now there's maybe this group of mercenaries going around who know they're the only ones who can get these contracts in order for Exxon to grant the deal. So there were so many things in there that made me that just jumped out. There are problems and the problems are from the, the fish is definitely rotting from the head on this one, which I thought was un- unbelievable. So I do think this was internal controls were ironically there. It's one of those things, if I saw this case as defense counsel, or I actually even as compliance, and you're writing your attachments to you, this DPA, like this is what we'll do differently next, this is how we will handle this going forward and what we'll remediate. I think there's that's a little bit of a tricky question because there were some policies and procedures in place they were just ignored and they were no- ignored all the way to the top. And so how do you handle that? That's a culture shift I think problem. So that that was what I wanted to think about and focus on. Obviously that's in, a lot of that's in the SEC purview, but I also think that runs across every one of these settlements.
2: Matt, do you have a comment or question for Karen?
0: I have maybe a comment and if anybody has any, love to hear them. We should remember this is AB Bird FCPA settlement. So what about those other two? I went back and I looked, there was one in 2010, and there was one in 2000, up the case in 2004, found it on the department's page or something. In both cases, I was struck that the Justice Department at the time were implementing AB on its action and compliance program reforms. In 2004, they were doing this. And so I'm still struck at, like, how did we get here? Because Karen's absolutely right that there are internal controls that existed I were put in place from those execution efforts and control reforms back in the first two. And yet we had a second case and then a third. So maybe that points to the tone at the top issues that I think Karen very rightly calls out because the stuff was there two or three times and yet here we are here and it's just puzzling. All right, Jay Rosen.
2: You have looked at this case from the angle of how did ABB create a pot of money to pay the bribes? And I found the bribery schemes interesting, and more importantly, with some significant lessons for
3: the compliance professional. But what did you see in your review? Yeah, thanks, Tom. So as you said, today, we're going to look at the bribery schemes used by ABB. And the first one, which was very interesting, was there was a bribery prepayment plan, And one of the things we really see is prepayment of bribes for a contract to be awarded corruptly. And in the future, as usually there's a quid pro quo or a payment made after a contract is corruptly awarded. Perhaps the corrupt ESCOM officials who awarded the contract to AB saw that their actions in passing on internal and confidential info, which the company then used to secure a contract, Maybe this was worthy of the payment. Perhaps the ESCOM officials wanted to show good faith, whatever for the reason that the corrupt officials wanted an upfront prepayment for the corruption awarded to in the contracts to ABB. Then the second one, or actually we'll go to the first one that Karen spoke about before. There was corrupt subcontractor one who was the lead bribe facilitator and was awarded a contract for 7.2 million. And then consequently, according to the plea ar- agreement, paid $798,000 as an advance payment. And the money was to be paid to the corrupt ESCOM official. However, corrupt subcontractor one balked at making the payment and kept the money for themselves. ABB's answer was, well, let's bring in subcontractor two to facilitate the prepayment to corrupt ESCOM official." So the second bribe happens because the original contract with subcontractor one, ABB had to come up with another mechanism now to fund the bribe repayments to the corrupt ESCOM official. The solution was elegantly simple, using a variation order. And under this, the scheme was effected or effectuated throughout the abuse of various orders provided in the contract between ABB and ABB South Africa. The bribery scheme, excuse me, Africa and ESCOM. These provisions allowed ESCOM to make changes in the contract resulted in the ABB South Africa claiming additional costs from ESCOM officials and the ABB capture team lead agreed upon a target price, which ABB South Africa would then be, quote, based on proposals to include inflated, unnecessary, or unjustified costs and ESCOM would officially approve. An official at the service provider B then ensured that the money was transmitted to the ESCOM official and his family members from the payments. The variation orders were not based on the value of additional work, but were costed out by corrupt ESCOM officials in ABB jointly. They would figure out on how much of a bribe they needed to be, and then they would hit on a target price for the variation order. In less than two years, from 2016 to 2017, ABB corruptly paid some $37 million in bribes to corrupt ESCON officials. And as the SEC order somewhat dryly noted, the various payments to the service provider B, much of which was intended as bribes for the ESCON official, were inaccurately reflected in ABB South Africa's books, and records, and legitimate engineering services involved the use of false purchase orders and contracts, which we've seen in similar schemes before. While these bribery schemes are not all sophisticated, they do point out a key issue for compliance officials. In high-risk jurisdictions, there must be continuous monitoring of billing from payments to and from governments and from state-owned companies and customers. The mechanisms by which corrupt subcontractors 1 and 2 were onboarded clearly presented red flags, which are not followed up by the ABB compliance. These funding mechanisms also demonstrated significant red flags, which should have been more scrupulously reviewed as well. So compliance does not stop when the contract is signed. It must be an ongoing prevention, detection, and remediation program. And so, my final thoughts would be if at first you bribe and don't succeed, bribe and bribe again.
2: I wanted to say a few words about the DOJ and the overall positioning of this settlement. All of us were notified by our good friend Dylan Tokar at the Wall Street Journal the week before the settlement happened in the Risk and Compliance Journal, telling us this was coming. And we all were very eager to see this because we all knew of ABB's twice-passed FCPA violations, so they were already a recidivist, so we wondered what the DOJ would do to ABB. We've talked a little bit in this podcast about the extraordinary cooperation the company gave and made. We also talked about the putative attempt at self-disclosure, which was given a lot of ink in the settlement documents, particularly in the plea agreement, which typically we don't get that much information about an attempt to self-disclose. But we got a settlement where a three-time FCPA offender, as Karen noted, not because of some rogue employee, but a cultural problem at the corporate home office led to this result. And I, for one, had to think and read these several times to try to figure out One, how did ABB get this great settlement? And I think it was a great settlement. And two, what was the DOJ trying to communicate to us? Because as Matt noted, sometimes the press releases are a little bit dry and don't contain all of the information that we're concerned with. So I finally came down to a phrase that my friend Mike DeBernardis said that he thought the DOJ threaded a needle and I agree with Mike on this one, that the DOJ did thread a needle because they gave credit, a huge amount of credit, for extraordinary cooperation during the pendency of an investigation for extraordinary remediation as well. And they communicated, I think, more than adequately in the settlement documents that if you step forward, no matter how bad the situation may be, which was now a three-time defender, offender, I should say, in the with the corruption going all the way up to the corporate, you can still receive a superior result. Recognize $350 million is a lot of money. And the company did not receive self-disclosure credit because they didn't meet the self-disclosure requirements, but they still got 25% off the bottom of the sentencing guideline. Uh, so. They received some credit for this for their own actions here, and I think this was a huge win for compliance because whatever ABB did, I think it was extraordinary. And I know I've interviewed Karen on this, and ev- and every person who has been a defense lawyer will tell me has told me the thing you bring is credibility, and it's clear to me that because of the way ABB started this case with their attempt to self-disclose, they were able to build credibility with the department of justice and credibility, or even trust with the department of justice that they were going to do the right thing this time. That trust led all the way through to the non-appointment of a monitor. Now there's an extraordinary reporting requirement that Matt detailed, but I think the biggest surprise for all of us initially was no monitor. So, I think this was a huge win for compliance. ABB has busted its tail, I think, to try to express remorse and fix the cultural problem that they had. They've done it in a way that clearly, to my mind, has satisfied the Department of Justice. And I think the DOJ communicated to the greater compliance community what you can expect, even with the enhanced CCO certification requirements and the discussions in the Monaco memo around The use of monitors. It's not really a shout out, but I wanted to acknowledge the DOJ for communicating this to us. I think Mike DeBernardis was right. They did thread a needle because this case had as bad a fact as you can have. But I think it's a huge win for compliance. And uh, there's a lot every compliance professional can take away. And if heaven forbid you find yourself in a situation similar to AB, I think you have a pretty good roadmap going forward. That's my pitch on this. Any questions or comments for what I had to say? All right, ladies and gentlemen, now it's time for shout outs. So we'll keep the same order and start across the pond with Mr. Armstrong. What do you have for us on the holiday season, Jonathan?
1: Since it's the holiday season, I'll have a slightly longer story than usual in recognition of your splendid as well, Tom. In the late 90s, I was involved in an organization called First Tuesday, and I used to chair some of their meetings. And it was a little bit like Dragon's Den here, Shark Tank there, where people would come along and present their technology ideas for funding. And one time I can remember seeing a dear old couple on the front row, and said to them, why are you here? Do you guys know what you're doing? And they said, we're not here, but our pension isn't much. And we're going to effectively gamble it on some tech opportunities that we see here today. And as pleasantly as I could, I sent them away and said, don't get your checkbooks out because we had checkbooks in those days. Enjoy the show, but promise me you won't spend any money today. And hopefully I saved them from some sort of financial bad consequences. Now, of course, tech scams aren't new. We've had tech scams since at least the 1800s when there were railroad scams. And we had some pretty impressive railroad scams on both sides of the Atlantic. But you certainly get the sense that they're more prevalent at the moment with blockchain and AI and cryptocurrency and NFTs. And my rule of thumb is that if anybody comes and pitches you with all four of those buzzwords, that's something to absolutely avoid. And obviously, many of these schemes are simple frauds. Some of them are Ponzi schemes. Some of them are pyramid selling schemes. Or if you're really talented, like Dr. Ruver. Ignasheva with her one coin offering, you can run a Ponzi and a pyramid selling scheme at once. And it behoves, of course, all of those in the public space, I think, to stamp out these alternative get-rich-quick schemes that nearly always end in disaster. And that would extend to the leaders of our nations and also presidential candidates But there is one, of course, who's not standing out about what look to be dubious crypto NFT type offerings. And that's former president who's launched his Trump cards. They should be called. He's missed the obvious name. They cost $99 new. The last time I looked this morning, you could actually already buy them secondhand, if you so choose, for $60. And... Is this the full might of the Trump organization backing these NFT cards? Sadly not. It's that well-known financial organization, NFT International LLC, that seems to be running this alternative form of currency or token that you can theoretically exchange for cash. Obviously, at the moment, you can exchange it for less cash than you bought it for, which doesn't seem a great financial investment. And where is NFT International LLC based? Wall Street, you might think. But no, it's based in the financial metropolis that is Cheyenne, Wyoming. And, And instead of operating from Cheyenne, Wyoming, where I guess rents are prohibitively high and talent's hard to reach, they currently seem to run out of a vape shop in Park City, Utah. So I'm not saying that this is a fraudulent operation in any way. It does look to be an unlawful lottery or a lottery that would be unlawful in many parts of Europe. And it does look as if these tokens are for sale there. But what I'd say, just as I said to that elderly couple in the 90s, proceed with absolute caution. And unless you're confident that the people in Cheyenne, Wyoming, if they exist, and the people in the vape shop in Park City, Utah, aren't going to take you for a mug, then keep your hands in your pockets and don't write a check.
2: That is one very high bar to set.
0: Matt <laughs> Kelly, what do you have
1: for us? Well, I'll- my best
0: because the first time ever i think i'm going to have to give a repeat rant as i recall i started the rant against elon musk and now i find as 20 22 draws to a close and worse so here we are back ranting of erratic and impulsive just really totally behavior i am going to rant about how last night the night of thursday december 18th of december 15th, Elon permanently, apparently, a bunch of very credible news reporters from the New York Post, from CNN, several others, who basically had the temerity to report on Elon Musk. This happened one day after he permanently suspended a student down in Florida, a college a Twitter account that tracked the location of Elon's private jet. And remember, six or seven weeks ago, Elon said I am a defender of free speech that jet tracking account is fine I don't like it but I believe in free speech yeah well, that was baloney. and it the not only did he can that account he then also per the account of that student his personal account and began legal proceedings against this 20 year old who had the temerity to publish what is publicly available data If you don't like people knowing where your private jet is flying, don't fly private. Go on commercial. But the FAA discloses this at all times. Elon had apparently unilaterally to change the terms of service and the policies around Twitter that any posting of geolocation that is live. What does that mean? Who knows? It's not defined. But is it two days old? Is it 10 minutes old. Is it just right now? Data is now improper to post. So anybody who does that is going to get suspended. Now let's go back to the media types who got suspended. They actually were not posting geolocation data. They were commenting on stories about Elon suspending the kid who was posting the flight data. They got suspended. Uh, Elon then tried to have a Twitter space which I guess is like a giant open conference call on things. But he had to try to host an open Twitter spaces on this. He got shouted down, so he shut it down and then shut down the Twitter spaces for a while. He posted a poll, should I keep these reporters or not and running that no, you you should let on. So he took the poll down. This guy is fit for a straight. We have some actual corporate governance. Valid. This is a terrible way to amend Corporate policy is you jury catches your CEOs. We are using the power of Twitter punitive way. Think about the corporate culture message that sends to employees. And throughout all of this, let's not. He has a job as one of the most important companies in the Westlow, which is stock price currently sucks. The stock price has fallen half this year. And does he not have some fiduciary duty to care about being CEO of that company and maybe thinking about the share price. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he doesn't. Where is the board at Tesla? Clearly, investors have steam coming out of their e but Elon has no idea what he's doing, acting like some impulsive ever who either needs some sort of medication or should be put in the dementia ward. The man has sailed off the edge of sanity with Twitter, and this is in no way, shape or form, a good thing for our country or any of the other companies that he's currently letting go right down. And Happy New Year. Karen, Uh,
2: we went from a seven
0: foot high jump to a 19 foot pole
2: vault. What you got for us?
4: I'm going to keep in my pop culture kind of mode, but I have a shout out, but it's a somber one. And that is that this week we lost a guy named Steven Twitch Boss who was a pop celebrity in the sense he got to start on a show called So You Think You Can Dance in 2008, which was like the answer to American Idol, but for dancers. he was spectacular talent that you have never seen and that launched his career. That ended recently with him also being on Ellen, the side, whatever, the person who was DJing and hanging out on the Ellen show every day. But this week he took his own life at age 40 and leaves behind three kids. And he's someone who I think a lot of us that really hit hard because we don't know him obviously personally, but he was such a bright, happy personality. In every media that we could find him in, that this, it's just, I think, stopped a few people in their tracks. Gosh, that's a really terrible story. So, my shout out today is a somber one and is one that is really a shout out to the collective, to the to humanity, to people who find winter hard, find the holidays hard. I think we should all give each other a little bit more grace, a little more pause, and some kindness. And to those who find this particular time of year, one in which you struggle, just my shout outs just to you and to let you know that the world very much has need of you.
3: Jay Rosen. Karen, I'm going to stay on the pop culture. And my shout out, my rave is to a guy named Mike Gabler. And you might say, who is Mike Gabler? He is Survivor season 43 winner. And after he was announced as the winner on Wednesday, he revealed that he's moving forward with the plan to donate $1 million in prize money to veterans. Gabler has been open about his plan to donate the money, but many were surprised when he went through and did it live on TV. Gabler later revealed that he's fortunate to come from a military family and was honored and forever grateful that he was able to give back to veterans like his father. We all have a chance of a lifetime out here and the adventure of a lifetime, he said. What we all learn from each other is priceless. Kudos to Mike Gabler and Tom, I guess we we go to you or have you already done yours?
2: No, I am going to have a shout out, a little melancholy, but I'm going to go back to my college years and come all the way forward because I'm going to shout out to Christine McPhee. Christine was one of the members of the supergroup Fleetwood Mac. She was the first of the five person classic lineup to pass away. During part of her time in Fleetwood Mac, she was married to bassist John McBye. And while most fans focused, at least most male fans, focused on Stevie Nicks as the lead singer of the group, for me, Christine was always the it. Her voice was husky and sultry. I thought it was a perfect counterpoint to Stevie Nicks. She was also the band's keyboardist and, most importantly, or more importantly, a fantastic songwriter, according to her New York Times obituary. In the band's greatest hits anthology, which sold 8 million copies in 1988, she wrote over half of the 16 track. My personal top five Christine McVie playlist is Say You Love Me, You Make Love and Fun, The Chain, Over My Head, and Little Lies. I fell in love with Christine McVie when I was in college, and that love continued all the way through. Christine McVeigh, I know you're in a great band in the sky now, and I wanted to thank you for all the songs, all the memories, all the love, and most importantly, for being a part of Fleetwood. So with that, we conclude our what has become our holiday edition. I wanted to wish everyone a very happy holidays. Jay Rosen, I hope you get some great Chinese food this year. <laughs> and uh, Jonathan Armstrong, I hope with your travel will not be travel travails, but will be good travels (laughs) with everyone else. Thank you. And happy holidays, everybody. We'll catch you in 2023. Thanks, Tom. Happy
1: holidays. Happy holidays.
2: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this special episode of Everything Compliant. We're going to return the first week in September with the full gang back for our fall season. I know you'll enjoy it. I hope you'll check out the next episode of Everything Compliance, which should premiere the first week in September. If you haven't listened to uh, several of the new special podcasts out on the Compliance Podcast Network, I'd ask you to, to take a listen. Under the Greetings and Felicitations podcast, I had two really fun week-long series. The first one was the 100th anniversary of Ulysses, and the second was the intersection of compliance and Winnie the Pooh. So check out one or both of those podcasts if you want to maybe think about taking your program in a different direction through storytelling. Also, check out the podcast on uh, how the world has changed forever Uh, after the Russian invasion of the Ukraine in business on the podcast, Never the Same, where I feature Brandon Daniels from Exeter. Thanks for listening. We look forward to visiting with you again.
1: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.